This morning's reading is from the book of Matthew, beginning with the seventh chapter. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. You know, it's so, so great to be with you today. Uh, and whether you're here in person or online, and I know some of you probably plan to be here in person, but because of the weather, it seemed like better to stay online. Uh, this is the first Sunday in Lent, which means Easter is just six weeks away. That's encouraging, isn't it? And uh, uh, today we begin our series called this is Jesus. Do we have a slide for that? There we go. This is Jesus walking through Matthew's gospel. And my goal is that we will all get to know Jesus in a fresh way. You know, I grew up uh, singing about Jesus in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. But in my mid-teens, I didn't know what I believed anymore. You know, Jesus just seems so remote, so ancient, so impersonal. And then I met some students who talked about Jesus like they knew him, like he was their friend, and they had put him in charge of their lives. And I also saw that it created this bond between them, between them that just seemed almost miraculous. And while I would never have an opportunity to get to know most of those students, I did feel an, a powerful urge inside me to know Jesus the way they did. And so there came a point where I asked Jesus to make his home in me and I turned my life over to him. Here it is, whatever you want with it, it's all yours. And it created a hunger in me to know him even more. Now, right away, I, I found a, a paperback New Testament and began reading the four biographies of Jesus in the Bible we call Gospels. I wanted to find out more about this person. I'd just given my life to him, you know? Uh, what did he do? What did he say? What did he want me to do and say? So I'm going to invite, uh, invite you to join us for six weeks as we journey through one of those Gospels, Matthew's Gospel. I'm going to be preaching from it, but really the biggest part is what you are going to be doing. Uh, the reading that you're going to be doing at home and the discussion that you'll be doing in your groups. We have these devotional commentaries on Matthew um, for you to pick up. They're there at the table in the entryway at the east entrance, uh, written by seminary professor Ben Witherington. I've met uh, Dr. Ben. Um, his, his book has 40 daily readings, uh, just two or three pages a day. And that includes the passage from the gospel. And uh, now I know it'll be an investment for you, but I can't think of a better time to make that kind of investment than during Lent. Many of our faith groups will be using then the discussion guide in this book at their weekly gatherings. Uh, Polly uh, read our scripture for us. Thank you, Polly. 
Uh, it comes from the first block of teaching that we find in Matthew's gospel, the one we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Chapter 7 starts with a command and a warning. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. When Jesus says this, he's not really bringing up a completely new topic. He's picking up on one of the themes found earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you know, one of the blessings, the Beatitudes, says it more positively. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown what? Mercy. When you show mercy to people, you're not judging them. Jesus said, if we forgive those who sin against us, then we will in turn receive forgiveness. And when you forgive someone, you are not judging them, right? Jesus said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When you love and pray for someone, you're not judging them. If you're new with us today, uh, let me just say that I like to give uh, messages with just one main point. A lot of you know that. Today, Jesus' words in Matthew 7, uh, uh, verse 1, they are the main point right there. But today, I have several subpoints for you. <laughs> four, I have four things Jesus does not mean. Oops, there we go. Uh, four things that Jesus does not mean when he says, uh, do not judge, and three things that I believe he does mean. First, what does he not mean? You're not judging when you recognize sin. For example, if you believe that uh, adultery is a sin, as Jesus teaches, it doesn't mean that you're judging someone who's done it. Remember the woman? who was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus, what did he say? He said, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. So you're not judging when you recognize sin as sin. The late Rabbi Zechariah spoke all over the world as a defender of the Christian faith. Since his death last year, an investigation has found a long history of sexual sin and a list of women that he has damaged emotionally and spiritually. Now we're not judging when we say that what he did was terribly wrong. We must say that his actions were sin and that they were harmful. Next, you're not judging when you exercise discernment. Discernment is a good thing. For example, if it, it, it's, it's okay if you discern that someone is not safe for you. Sometimes you've got to set boundaries, right? Even though it may not feel good to do so. When you set boundaries, you may feel a little judgy. The other person may, who's being boundaried may feel judged, but that's not the kind that, of judging that Jesus is talking about. Because we always have to make wise discernments. Third, you're not judging when you lovingly correct someone. And I may add, with their permission. Okay? 
six or seven years ago in my monthly pastor's share and prayer small group, um, I shared how I was struggling with something, but I, I was resisting accepting help for it. And one guy in the group, one of my pastor friends said, you know, that's pride. I hadn't thought of it like that. But he was right, and I am so glad he said it. And you know, there aren't very many weeks go by that I find myself in a similar situation, and I think of what he said. He was lovingly confrontational. I took no offense. We had the kind of trust in this group that we could do that with each other. Finally, it's not judging when the church exercises appropriate discipline. You know, on rare occasions, I've had to say to a volunteer who's not been behaving well and has not heeded warnings, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I think it's time for you to take a break from this role. And I explain why. Or I say, let's find you a new ministry to plug into. But that's not what it means by judging. You probably know pastors who have been disciplined for their behavior. Some have had their credentials removed. Some have been put on a leave of absence. That is accountability. It's not the kind of judging Jesus is talking about. Uh, and, and that's an important distinction to make. Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. So what does he mean? At the very least, it's safe to assume that it means do not condemn anyone, right? Some Bible versions even translate it this way, do not condemn. Uh, and, you know, it's not up to me to pronounce who is saved and who's not saved. I mean, that, that's, that's beyond my pay grade, right? That's, that's got to be God's job. Only God knows what's in their hearts. Only God can judge. We also can add that it means do not consider anyone a worse sinner than you. I put me there because I was thinking of me, but however it works. Now, I must not assume that their sins, someone else's sins, are worse than mine. And if my sins look small on the outside, who knows how God sees them, right? Maybe mine were more devious more treacherous, more intentional, and maybe I knew better. Jesus told the story of a, of a do-gooder Pharisee who prayed to God how thankful he was that he had checked off all these things on his righteousness list. Meanwhile, a scoundrel tax collector beat his chest and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says it was the scoundrel and not the do-gooder who went home in a right relationship with God. So, the way I look at it, my attitude has to be like the apostle Paul. I have to assume that I'm the world's worst sinner, and I'm forever thankful to God that he forgave me and saved me. Amazing grace, how, great, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. And we, can, and we can say that do not judge means do not be quickly, unfairly, or unkindly critical. 
You agree with that? Do not be quickly, unfairly, or unkindly critical. It's not my job to tell everybody what they're doing wrong. Have you ever been around somebody who apparently uh, assumes that it's their spiritual gift to correct everybody else? (laughs) Sorry, it's not a spiritual gift. Now, I want us to walk through the rest of the passage, okay, that Polly read. Uh, Last week, I saw my neighbor pushing the snow off his driveway, and he was using this really wide shovel. I mean, it must have been five feet wide. Looked like a snow plow. And when it comes to judging others, be careful what kind of shovel you're using. Because the scoop you use to judge others is the same scoop that God will use to judge you. That's the idea behind verse 2. It says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Um, Have you seen Les Les Miserables? The movie or anything. We, Trish and I like uh, the movie version with Liam Neeson, Uma Thurman, and Jeffrey Rush. If you haven't watched it, it's, it or you haven't watched it in a while, it's, it's worth it. It's the kind of movie I would watch every year. Anyway, Inspector Javert is consumed with hunting down and destroying Jean Valjean. Ever since Valjean uh, received an act of mercy from a priest, he's been transformed by grace. Inspector Javert knows nothing of grace, only cold condemnation. And throughout the story, those two worlds keep colliding, the world of grace and the world of condemnation. Finally, the, world, uh, uh, the weight of Javert's world of condemnation comes back on him, and he can no longer bear to live. His own judgment comes crashing down on him. In verse 3, we come to Jesus' mini parable of the speck and the plank. Here's what he says. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. What what an awesome picture Jesus creates there, right? Obviously, he's using hyperbole because you can't literally have a plank in your eye. He's exaggerating to make his point. You know, during uh, college, I spent three summers working at a factory, a window factory, And uh, one summer, I worked in the machine department where pieces of wood were cut and trimmed for parts for wood windows for houses. Anyway, one day, I got a speck of sawdust in my eye that would not wash out. I had to go to the ER. Fortunately, the doctor was able to see it and extract it And I came back to the factory with my eye patched and taped over half of my face. I got to go home the rest of the day. It was almost worth it, right? I needed someone to get that speck out of my eye, and it needed to be someone who could see well to do it. Jesus is saying, you must be very careful 
when you correct someone. Because you have faults hidden to yourself, hidden from yourself. And they might be much greater than the person's faults you are attempting to correct. And that other person might say, how dare you point out the speck in my eye? Look at you. You've got this huge plank stuck in your eye. So I think Jesus is telling us to be humble. Spend more energy examining yourself and less energy examining others. To me, the plank in our eye represents biases that we are blind to. And we all have biases, right? Seven years ago, as a Valentine's gift, Trish got us tickets to see Creighton play. The first and only time we've, we've done that. And I was so excited because I wanted to see Doug McDermott play in person his senior year. The Jays were ranked 18th, defending their home court against 6th-ranked Villanova. We flowed in with the crowd into the CenturyLink Center, and with tickets in hand, uh, we, Trish and I made our way up, up, up <laughs> to our seats. And despite how high we were, the view was really good. I say that because some of the fans around us could see the action better than the refs on the court. Oh, you've sat in that section too, I see. Turned out to be a great game for the home fans. Dougie scored 39, and the Jays routed the Wildcats 101 to 80. I'm sorry, sports fans, but you are some of the most biased people in the world. Do you know that? You want your team to win so badly, and you see everything through that lens. You barely notice the uncalled offenses committed by your team. Meanwhile, the refs missed at least a dozen violations committed by the other team. How blind can they be? And if it's a kid's game, and the parents are watching, well, forget about it. You know how biased parents can be. Same thing with politics. Our biases blind us. And as a, as a result, we don't just disagree. We, we treat each other with contempt. We speak as if uh, those who believe differently are idiots. We say they're disgusting, that they're evil, and both sides do it. Jesus says, love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Treat one another with respect. Spell it with me, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. If you believe your candidates and your party does everything right and the other candidates and the other party does everything wrong, you may just have a plank in your eye. Then Jesus concludes his parable in verse 5. He says, you hypocrite! First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. How do we pull out our planks? How do we remove our blinding biases? 
I want to conclude with a few suggestions for that. Of course, the hard part with blinding biases is recognizing them. How do we see what is blinding us? Huh? Well, I'd say ask for help. Ask for help recognizing your biases. Ask a wise friend who has more objectivity and fairness than you do. Learn from someone who has experience in uncovering their biases. It's also good to read and listen to those who disagree with you. Can we, yeah. And and, uh, not for the purpose of tearing them down, but in order to better understand their point of view, to understand what is appealing and even important about it. Moral psychologist Jonathan Brait reminds us, each side sees some things and is blind to other things. And finally, we must pray for and practice humility. Bible scholar Grant Osborne comments on this passage. He says, we need a humility that says, I love you enough to want to help you, and tomorrow you will need to correct me. He says there's no sense of superior, in this kind of humility, there's no sense of superiority, no desire to make yourself feel good at the expense of another. And I began thinking, what if we all did this? What if all of us at Faith Westwood did this? What if all of Jesus' people did this? I believe God would bless us with a trusting, caring community that would be hard to resist. Don't you want to be a part of that kind of community? I think that's what Jesus wants for us. This is Jesus. Let's pray. Father above us, Jesus beside us, Spirit within us, teach us to recognize our biases, how they blind us, how they limit our love for one another. Give us wisdom to listen and learn rather than judge and condemn. Lord Jesus, we repent of our critical spirit. We repent of our arrogant pride. Keep us humble. And all God's people said, amen.